Hello, and welcome to the Future Christian Podcast, your source for insights and ideas into what it means to live as a follower of Jesus in the 21st century. At the Future Christian Podcast, we talk to pastors, authors, and other faith leaders for helpful advice and practical wisdom to help you and your community of faith walk boldly into the future. Here's your host, Lauren Richmond Jr. Welcome to the Future Christian Podcast. My name is Lauren Richmond Jr. Today I am welcoming Jonathan Foster to the show. Jonathan is an award winning and Amazon best selling author. He recently received his doctorate through Northwind Seminary. His dissertation turned to book is called Theology of Consent Mimetic Theory in an Open and Relational Universe. Today we'll be talking about his book, The Reconstructionist. He's the founder of lovehaiti.org, has three children, and one lifelong partner. You can find out more about him at jonathanfosteronline.com. All right, welcome to the show, Jonathan Foster. Thanks so much for being here. Is there anything else you'd like our listeners to know about you? Hey, Lauren, thank you for having me. It's uh, it's great. It's an honor to be on with you. And uh, no, I mean, you know, I'm just a guy who's pulling at the thread, the theological thread, as it were, and landing on some really interesting things in my life, been through some stuff. So hopefully, hopefully the listeners can relate. Awesome. Well, thanks for being here. Um, talk, if you would, about your journey of faith, what that looked like at the beginning, if there was a beginning, and what that looks like today. Sure. Yeah. So I came from a pretty um, like typical, maybe evangelical kind of home, fairly legalistic. My denomination, my background is Church of the Nazarene. My grandparents were pastors. My parents were pastors. It was kind of in my DNA. Not surprisingly, I decided that's what I wanted to do. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I went more the church planting route. So I've been a part of three church plants. And for the most part, that's been really meaningful. I was just thinking just yesterday, I was having this conversation thinking through, gosh, it's crazy how many more meaningful moments I've had with people who are uh, new to the faith versus people who have been in the faith for a long time. Hmm. It seems like that long-term thing uh, really uh, makes some people not too much fun to be around. So anyhow, <laughs> church planting was cool. Uh, started a nonprofit in Haiti a few years ago uh, that that my oldest son runs now, and that has been super meaningful. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, so the the faith background is just growing in that and being a pastor, but then uh, running up against really intense. Uh, loss and hmm. things in my life that put me in a position where I realized that kind of my old theological construct wasn't allowing me to come up with what I determined, decided was healthier answers. And so mm-hmm. I had to kind of uh, had to kind of work through that, which set me down a whole path. I wasn't planning on going down, but but here we yeah. are. Yeah. Well, I appreciate you sharing that. Um, I'm just thinking as you. We were talking before we started recording about um, Thomas J. Ord, who we both know. Um, you know, I, I think his book that I think deals with the the topic of theodicy is the what God can't write. Yeah, that's um, his probably most well known one. Yeah, you know, I really wrestled with the, the topic of theodicy through the um, what is that when bad things happen to good people mm-hmm. book. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, that's such a such a profound. Um, 
don't know about your perspective, Jonathan, but for me at least, like I, I feel like when someone wrestles with theodicy and 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 someone goes through all that all that stuff, and like they choose to come out like exactly where they were, like I'm just like go for it if that's what, yeah. If that's like what's meaningful for you when you process all your grief and trauma, and like I think of like um, several years ago, I saw Stephen Chris Chapman in co- concert, and this was like not too long after that tragic death of his. I think it was his daughter, and yeah, and he just shared yeah. briefly like about going through that process and and just choosing to like say I'm still going to trust that everything. And I, I just was like. Steven, I support you. Like, mm-hmm. I don't believe the same exact way, but mm-hmm. you know, I'm hundred percent behind you. If that's what's meaningful for you in your life, like I support you on that. And not that we had a personal conversation, but that was kind of my imagined conversation. Yeah. I relate to that. Like my wife and I frequently say something like, you know, the stuff works until it doesn't work. And mm-hmm. then it, that when it doesn't work, that's a really interesting question. Like, uh, as a human being, will you will you figure out kind of new ways? Will you navigate, negotiate, and change? Um, mm-hmm. I don't think there's anything wrong with changing. I think it was Howard Thurman who said, you know, to change is to live, you know, to change often is to live well. Mm-hmm. And I think there's some truth to that because, you know, nothing really ever stays the same. Yeah. But to your point, yes, I also, I, I recognize all of us are just trying to, we're trying to create meaning of all the absurdity of life. And um, if, you, if you've got something that works for you, I'm, I'm more power to you. I mean, I, as long as it's not disrespectful to others and denigrating to others, which yeah, unfortunately yeah. sometimes it gets that way. But by and large, yeah, I mean, go for it. Yeah. Um, what, is, what is a spiritual practice that you find meaningful or has supported you through these recent years? Um. I think I have gravitated when when we went through, so in 2015, um, like it's talked about in the book a little bit. I don't talk about it a ton in the book, but um, I definitely reference it. We lost our oldest daughter in a car wreck, so it was a sudden, intense change in our life. Mm-hmm. And so I really doubled down on a lot of disciplines hmm. uh, at the time, including prayer. Um, you might be familiar with Brian Zahn's prayer school mm. um, that mm-hmm. I, I kind of was already concocting my own kind of discipline. And then I added some of that and really used that heavily use might not be the right word, but I interacted with that heavily for man, probably about five, six, seven years, almost daily. Mm-hmm. And I found that to be incredibly helpful. Part of what he did and what I was doing right during that time was, you know, com- was really falling in love more with like ancient prayers and trying to definitely do away with, you know, thinking of prayer as getting God to do something and rather more prayer as the thing that helps me be formed in the model of love. And so uh, I would just kind of meditate, and that's an important word for me on some of these ancient writings and scriptures and prayers that people have written a long time ago, because particularly in that, in the wake of that loss, I really, I, I really had no prayer other than what the hell just happened. 
Mm-hmm. And that was my basic prayer. Yeah. And and the second part of that was what does this mean? Which I'm still trying to Yeah. Uh I'm still trying to figure that out basically. Right. And it's kind of fueled all of my my dissertation work and all my writing. But um I would say the prayer piece was super helpful and it's turned I, I mentioned meditation because now over the years it's turned into more of an interest in meditation. So it's it's gone slightly a psychological, but I don't even, I'm not even sure it's the best way to categorize it. Cause I don't think that means it's non-spiritual. It's just, mm-hmm. it's been more of an attunement of my emotional psychological state in the presence, I think of God. And I would add to that lots of hiking. Um, I know you live in Colorado. I love Colorado. I'm out there as much as I can be getting to the mountains is a huge spiritual practice for me. Hmm. Well, I appreciate you sharing that. Uh, yeah. I, I'll just say, like as a parent, the loss of a child is is unimaginable. Um, so my heart just goes out to you and your Thank family, you. even even in the years since. And I yeah. I pray that you're you've been able to find some measure of healing uh, in that loss. Appreciate it. Yeah, it's, but, it is unimaginable. It's crazy. Yeah, let's talk about your book. Um, mm-hmm. So this is actually a book that you published what a couple years ago, right? Yeah. So actually, it would have been. A year ago, almost right now, so end of 21. Yeah. Okay, so it's not that old, but the book is mm-hmm. The Reconstructionists. Mm-hmm. People, uh, well, I can't read the, I can't, I don't do math, and this is like kind of mathy. Uh, people <laughs> over text, mercy over sacrifice, and love over yeah. fear. Yeah. Uh, but share if you would kind of like what inspired the book and how it came to be. Yeah. Well, I I was on a journey, like we're all on a journey, uh, and I was a pastor, and I was already kind of reinterpreting things maybe a little bit more progressively than than my larger church family, but but certainly after my my daughter passed away, it it was like um high octane fuel to this whole thing that that we often hear referenced now as deconstruction. Mm-hmm. And um I mean I wasn't I wasn't necessarily calling it at the time. I wasn't necessarily, I wasn't trying to enter into it. I wasn't right. entering into a whole new way of thinking because I was angry. I really wasn't even angry at God. Hmm. Um, I wasn't angry at the church. Um, and I just mentioned that because sometimes all that baggage is, is connected with deconstruction. Yep. Now yep. I have had anger since then. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm fine with expressing anger to God and I'm fine with telling people, yeah, the religious system I was a part of because Long story short, um, as I talk a bit about in the book, the religious system wound up uh, voting me off the uh, denominational island, as mm-hmm. it were. But um, anyhow, I, I got in, I just started pulling the thread. That's the, kind of the way I say it. Yeah, I don't. I don't know if you're familiar with George MacDonald. He was a fantasy writer that inspired C.S. Lewis and and Tolkien and mm, others, okay. really as much as anyone. And he had a, he has a story called The Princess and the Goblin. Uh, which I read years ago. And so when I say pull at the thread, I always think of the story because as I remember it, the princess at the beginning of the story was up in her room in the castle. I don't remember if it was the grandmother or the fairy godmother or someone was telling her if she ever gets afraid, there is a spool of invisible thread in the corner of the room. And she could, she could start following that thread and it would lead her to safety. Hmm. So of course, as the story goes, she, you know, gets scared one night she finds that thread. She starts following it. It takes her through the back walls of the castle, places she's never been, down through the basement, out this secret door into a garden and through the forest. And she follows it to the base of a mountain. And when she gets to the mountain, 
it's covered with boulders, the entrance to this thing that was underneath the mountain. And so it's the middle of the night. Now she's scared. She can't get through the boulders. So she decides to turn around and go back. So she turns around to follow the thread back, only to discover that the thread goes only forward. Hmm. It doesn't go backward. Mm-hmm. So when I say pull at the thread, I every time I think of that, that's what I was doing. I, I, pu- I would pull at this theological, ecclesiological, psychological thread, and I'd get a little ways, and I'd be like, oh, crap, I can't do this. i got to turn around and go back, only to realize there is no going back. Yeah. It's, just, yeah. it's just going forward by faith. And so I kept pulling out the thread, and it landed me on Rene Girard mimetic theory stuff. It mm-hmm. landed me into open and relational theology stuff. Sorry, I'll answer the question now. That That's a deconstruction. All of that was deconstructing, but I was really interested in reconstructing. I wasn't mm-hmm. – I'm totally fine. In fact, I probably encourage people to disassemble their faith, especially lots of folks who've been hurt by a lot of different things. But I also felt compelled for my boys and for my nieces and nephews and young people in our church to try to reassemble it. So I was like, um, what, what could we write and what could I engage with to help me reconstruct? And I landed on, I realized at some point in about 2020, all my deconstruction, reconstruction journey was filtered through those three things that you just mm-hmm. read, that mm-hmm. mercy is greater than sacrifice, people are greater than the rules, and love is greater than fear. Hmm. Well, thanks for sharing that. Um, so I want to highlight a, a couple few uh, quotes from your book sure. and have you uh, reflect on those. One thing that really struck out to me, uh, stuck out to me, excuse me, I want to read this. Um, you, you write, having been in the local church your entire life, you genuinely think most Christians don't possess love for themselves. You say, I think they possess resentment, shame, anger, and fear or it possesses them. That really struck me, especially mm-hmm. that last sentence. Yeah, um, I, I think that that's probably accurate. That's still my view. I, I don't think most Americanized Christians have really had... <sighs> Let's see. I don't want this to sound disrespectful if people are listening. and They're like, well, don't tell me. Um, I, I'll just say, I'll disqualify this by saying, you know, having been a pastor and interacting mm-hmm. with a lot of people over the years and also interacting with the voices in my own head, you know, mm-hmm. um, and, and what the Bible has to say and trying to exegete the, the Bible and culture and, and what my people are going through. I, I think it's true that most people have not been able to allow love to sink to the depths of their heart where it's dissipated the shame. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that shame lives, the guilt lives. It's probably synonymous terms, shame, um, maybe some guilt, um, this really strong awareness that we have, you know, not met up to certain expectations, whether they're our own or someone else's. And that thing sits in there and it festers and it metastasizes. And we kind of try to suppress it, but that suppression turns into repression and then it manifests itself in some really weird ways. And so somehow in the middle of all that, I think that what I think is it goes from us hanging on to this shame and bitterness kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And then it somehow mutates into, well, it starts to hang on to us. Hmm. And that's, mm-hmm. that's, that's problematic. I mean, all of that's problematic, but that's tough because then you can't, you know, repression, you don't really control suppression. You kind of control if I understand in a psychological term, psychological sense, but repression, 
you don't really control what's going on. It's a lot of subconscious stuff. And there is a lot of, you know this as a pastor, there's a (laughs) lot of subconscious, dysfunctional, spiritual, psycho-spiritual drama going on with people in the world. Mm -hmm. Well, we don't don't have time to talk about it. Uh, Maybe when I have you on again for your next book, hopefully. Um, But I feel like there's a, there's a relation here between atonement theory, right? And this deep shame and guilt. For sure. For sure. Yeah. And that was a big, that was a big linchpin thing for me. So yeah, let's, let's get on again and talk about that. <laughs> um, oh, another quote from the book, which I think is interesting. Um, you write that for many of us, God is simply a projection of who we are. And this, this stood out to me because I think this is a, an accusation that uh, folks who who find themselves on the left side of the theological spectrum often get accused of from those on the right. Um, but I think a if we're being honest, like it, it's I think it's something we all do. I'll say that. So I guess a is like how do we recognize we're doing that, and then and b like what do we do about it? Yeah, yeah, that's interesting, isn't it? Um... Yeah, I do think the left gets accused of that, but probably the right does too. I think we probably all we're all we all tend to point our fingers at everyone else. Mm-hmm. Um, I think self awareness is huge. You know, I, I really think that that's an important um, discipline and practice to participate in to try to learn as much about ourselves so that we can give as much of ourselves away. Hmm. Um, that is a, that is a phrase and I'm, I'm, I apologize. I don't know where this quote comes from, but what I'm thinking of when I say that is I grew up in a context, I'm probably a little bit older than you, but, um, I grew up in a pretty conservative, uh, legalistic, uh, context, good home, by the way, my parents were great. Family was great, but there was just a lot of that baggage. And, in that particular context, um, you know, like back then, uh, even even going to a psychologist was mm-hmm. was not something anyone encouraged. Hmm. And um, it was even said to me, you know, if you see a therapist, you know, basically psychology, you know, the gospel is denying yourself, and therapy is trying to get you to accept yourself. And hmm. I remember, I never intuitively, I never liked that, but mm-hmm. it took me a while to figure out. No, I think of what, what's good about counseling and therapy and, and then also self-awareness is this idea of, yeah, getting to know yourself so that you can then willingly lay yourself down and enter into, you know, whatever love's inviting you to enter into. So when you, the more you get to know yourself, the more you realize, oh, my word, yeah, I project and potentially transfer, which is a very similar thing, psychologically mm-hmm. project. I project all the time um, onto people, and and you know why wouldn't I do that with God? Um, and I and I think that we do, especially when we create God to be. You know, your earlier question about shame—it's um, so much a part of who we are, and then so we we project onto God, and we just assume then that God has to punish us and is angry mm-hmm. with us, and that seems really strong. So I'm rambling a bit. How do we how do we not do that? There's probably a hundred different ways, but one is to get to know yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's a really honorable, good thing to do. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that. Yeah. Um, something else that stood out to me from the book, you write that the cross has become an object of magic 
symbolizing what Jesus did rather than the way. And I, I think of like, what's the word? Like a a totem? Am I thinking the right word? Um, the totem? Yeah. yeah. Kind of like the, this yeah. magical yeah. symbol. Uh, yeah. And I'm also reminded perhaps we could collaborate on this. Like many years ago in seminary, I wrote a paper on why the cross should should stop being like a foundational uh, symbol for Christianity, <laughs> you know, yeah. classic like seminary hot take paper, but um, <laughs> share more about, you know, how you think the cross as a symbol perhaps has, has, I don't know, what would you say? Lost its purpose, lost its true meaning. Yeah. I think what I was thinking when I was writing that was this idea that, um, it, it's so easy to do to gather on a Sunday morning and to sing about God and to worship God for what uh, his son Jesus did on the cross and to slowly, which I think is a, this is what has happened, slowly mm-hmm. over time allowed, you know, layer after layer of, of somewhat magical, mythical thinking like that, like that event was this transactional event that changed everything. I do think and it was it was an event that did something, but I don't think it was transactional, like Jesus had to do this to get God's attention. Mm-hmm. And so really well-intentioned Christians, because I think for the most part, that's what we have. Mm-hmm. Um, we have well-intentioned people who gather and they want to worship that particular thing. But the more you talk about it and worship it, sometimes the less you have to enter into it yourself. We can, we can kind of separate it as this superhuman transactional, unbelievable thing. We can't even understand now we're saved. And then, you know, we leave and we go do our thing, come back the next Sunday, worship it all over again. And I think that that is at best misguided at worst. It's, uh, manipulative and completely wrong because it doesn't really ask of us anything. Mm -hmm. It, it It just tells us to worship something and which I is kind of good, but worship that lead that doesn't lead to a life change, I think is is pointless and probably worse than pointless. Yeah, I, it is interesting, isn't it? Because, and I'm going to speak a bit broadly here of the quote unquote evangelical church scene, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, the, the the worship experience, which is often just the music experience, really is contextual there. Um, I mean, I guess, I guess most pastors would try to have some kind of relevant teaching that, that folks could apply elsewhere. But from my perspective, at least that's, I think one of the challenges of church is how to get people to take their faith and implement it into the Monday through Friday, Monday through Saturday life. Um, I mean, you're a pastor, like maybe I'm getting too practical here, Mm -hmm. like, you know, do we need to reimagine, re-envision, redo what the elements of the traditional Sunday morning worship experience are? What do you think? Hey, yeah, let's do that. Let's reimagine. Let's redo. Let's 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 try some new stuff. I think that that's what needs to happen, and let's try some new theological constructs that mm-hmm. undergird all these new, all this new stuff, um, and. Absolutely. I think we should experiment. I think we should have a sense of playfulness with this. I know those things are, those are basically, that's like, those are terms that are antithetical to church in Mm -hmm. most respects. 
Um, and I, I think we've just done ourselves a disservice because the point you're, I wasn't trying to make, and I think you're trying to make is that this stuff has to kind of make sense in the real world. And far, far too often we create these spaces where we bring people in, they do a few things and then they leave. Um, and, and it doesn't, it doesn't affect them. I'm hesitating now because I, I just wanted to pause for a second and say that that's not always the church's fault. That's not always the pastor's sure, fault. Yeah. You're, you're yeah, right. Amen to churches, that. <laughs> yeah. There are churches and pastors who are really, who really care a lot about yeah. this. A lot of, a lot of times it's, you know, the, the person for a variety of different reasons just simply cannot or will not enter into this thing um, at a deeper level. And so I know that's deeply frustrating as a pastor when that happens. Yeah. Um, so let me let me have you respond to one more quote here. Um, you write, the sacrifice isn't enough. Fear never lasts. Rules eventually birth resentment. Our only hope is love. Um, one, like I want to say like, yeah, 100%, Jonathan. The other part of me wants to be like, come on, enough wishy-washiness. Like <laughs> we've been trying this love is yeah. love thing. You know, um, you know, how for the skeptical among us, we might say, sure, like, sure. Give me, give me, give me some more. Yeah. Well, um, I do think that a part, I recognize that a part of my journey over the last several years, and I think this is true of a lot of people, is um, I had to rehabilitate, I had to redefine certain words. And love, love, love was one of them. But there were uh-huh. a lot of words, and it's it's interesting because it's kind of like you have two options when you're going through this, and mm-hmm. and neither of them, b- both of them are really hard work. Like you can either make up new language, mm-hmm. which I have done that at times. But right. as anyone knows, like to learn new language, it's really hard. Yeah, you know, we've been going to Haiti for the last uh, seven years now, and I I think I've learned you know, some new phrases and I get down there and I realize I really have, it's just really hard, especially as an adult to, yeah. to, to kind of rewire your brain. So, so you can learn new language, uh, which is helpful, but that's hard, but you can also then rehabilitate old words, but that's yeah. also hard yeah. because when you say a word, oh, like let's say sacrifice, mm-hmm. um, in my, you know, in my twenties and thirties, when I thought of sacrifice, my brain went up, you know, it was a, to get into psychodynamics philosophy, it was a signifier of a word. It signified a whole bunch of things. Now Mm -hmm. when I say it, it signifies something else. This is true of love. Love, unfortunately, you know, in the English language is just used for everything. You know, I love my, I love my wife. I love the Kansas city chiefs. I love Mexican food. I mean, you know, I love, I love God. So what I had, what I felt like I was invited to do was to really unpack a bunch of things. And love happens to be something I'm super interested in. I think it becomes the most important topic. So now when I think of love, my brain immediately goes to nonviolent, non-binary, non-scapegoating love. Hmm. Those are three very intentional moves that I definitely wasn't doing, you know, 10 years ago. But now because I've thought through and I've read and I've written about binary stuff and similar, same with violence and definitely with scapegoating because my dissertation wound up doing a ton of that stuff. Um, 
you know, that's just where my head goes. And But it took me a while. You know, it took me a while to get there. I also love, I should mention, Tom Ord's definition of love. His his definition goes something like it's um, an intentional um, move that in relationship with God and others for well-being. Hmm. So, you know, factoring in those things and factoring in non-binary, non-violent, non-scapegoating, all of a sudden you have you have a concept of love that is the furthest thing from wishy-washy. Hmm. You know, it is a challenging concept that um, I started to say requires. It invites me to uh, work through what I think about power and um, controlling and, you know, how we use things, how things use us. It's a, it's a deeply complex, rich word. Um, so that's kind of where I'm going. And I, and I think you're right. If without having some of that understanding and idea, it can come across like a little bit anemic and thin. Well, I think this fits into the broader conversation we're having here and the theme of your book of reconstructing. Um, I don't know, this is maybe I'm speaking for myself here, but I feel like I almost had to begin to redefine words, um, especially words around faith. Um, you know, I grew up very independent Baptist, very conservative. Um, so I, like, I remember, I, you know, I went to a main, mainline seminary and, you know, I tried to learn the whole, the language, like, you know, holy one for prayers, holy one. And, uh, mm-hmm. you know, one beyond our being and all these kind of elaborate, uh, words for God and prayer just didn't have the same, like they didn't mean the same thing to me they just seemed not me not in line with my faith tradition but also i still had all this kind of like theological baggage and attachment to the word god or other faith words so i really had to in a way redefine and probably still am redefining and reconstructing those words in my head when i use those words so i think it really it really fits here with your broader theme yeah that's a great point because all words they constantly have to be redefined. This is actually the heart of deconstruction. If we wanted to talk about Jacques Derrida and where mm-hmm. deconstruction came from, it's uh, metonymy. It's the, it's the idea that all words are defined by other words. If you go to the dictionary and you look at a word, it'll send you to other words. And when you look up those words, you go to more words. The reality is it kind of never stops. And I think there's a lot of... Um, What's the word? I started to say power. I, I don't. I don't know that that's the right word. But, that there's a lot of grace. There's we will help ourselves if we just admit that you know because mm-hmm. a lot of folks want to shame people for deconstructing. When I think the truth is that's a whole big that's a whole piece of it. But it's not necessarily just to tear down. So I don't blame people who have been hurt and who just want to tear down. Mm-hmm. It's to redefine and reassemble and reconstruct. I, I think there's so much beauty in that. Yeah. So I am, I'm a pastor, someone who loves the church, even though, you know, I've dealt with a fair bit of, of junk from the church. Mm-hmm. Um, but like you, I think like you, at least I'm very much on the reconstruction, reconstruction mm-hmm. um, path and encourage that for people. So you have what I think is, is really helpful. I think at least path that I kind of want to talk through. And again, it's the broader theme of this book of love over fear, 
mercy over sacrifice and people over text. And, and maybe let me respond to these and, and I want to hear your, your feedback, but you know, love over fear again, growing up very conservative fear was like the name of the game. Like we were taught to like live in fear of, of God, of our sin, of, of hell, of the rapture of everything. So, you know, when I said that thing about, oh, is love wish, you know, that kind of wishy-washy thing, that's, that's my subconscious, like passive, like, yeah. oh, love isn't enough. It has to be fear. So right. talk through that, flipping that dynamic of why love needs to be greater than fear. Yeah, you're so right. Uh, fear is almost the whole thing. I couldn't believe um, a few years ago, I'll try to make the, 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 a long story short, but when I started to really highlight love and inclusivity over against fear and exclusivity, and mm-hmm. you know, it led me down this path of reconsidering LGBTQ human beings, and I and I realized that um, I had been scapegoating them probably, and that for sure my denomination had been. Mm-hmm. But I couldn't believe over the course of about two years, as I changed my posture and as I began to speak and preach and teach differently about it, how many people wanted to talk to me about hell. So, you know, Mm. we'd go to coffee (laughs) and, you know, we'd be talking about LGBTQ matters. And then the next question was, well, do you not believe in hell? (laughs) And I'm like, first of all, I don't know if I do or not. Could we, let's define hell. Talk about a word that needs to be redefined. Um, Secondly, even if I did or whatever I do, there's about 49 steps in between what you just said and hell. Mm-hmm. And what I realized after a while was how quickly, how fear, how much fear motivated us hmm. and how we were, um, we were just conditioned, especially in religious circles to think in terms of what we're going to lose rather than what we might gain. Yeah. You know, that's just one tiny way that love refracts differently for me now than it used to. And I, and I just kept thinking there's, love fear is not a hard thing to do sometimes that's the way i think about it i think like what's a harder way to go yeah love love is a harder way to go oh i bet that's the way that god goes then too because Mm. god is love and if it was easy i mean any old god could do that i think i think the harder thing is to love in non-binary non-violent non-scapegoating ways intentionally for you know in relationship with others for their well-being Fear just, you know what, it, I give fear its due. I'm thankful it can come along for the ride. It's helped me sometimes not to get hurt, but it doesn't get to call the shots anymore. I'm not afraid of God. I remember the first time I said that on a Sunday morning, yeah. uh, half, half the church gasped. Yeah. And internally, I kind of gasped. Right. But then I was like, as soon as I said it, I thought, no, that's true. I'm not afraid of God. Hmm. Um, I'm afraid of what some of you people are going to do to me now that I yeah. just admitted I'm not afraid of God. But I think love is stronger. Yeah. The the next kind of marker along the path is mercy over sacrifice. And one of the things I appreciate in the book is you kind of, I think, if I remember correctly, you kind of acknowledge like there is this tension in the scriptures, in the Bible about like, what is, what is, what is the best way, mercy or sacrifice? Um, so I appreciate you acknowledging that tension. But again, I'm, again, I'm thinking here, um, I, I think this again, like, an example of like immigration uh, or legal quote unquote immigration. I I think there's this kind of like framework of like, well, we had a, 
this universal way we, which again, what's what sacrifice was there, but that's another conversation. Like, no. you know, we had to suffer, we sacrificed, so they need to sacrifice too. And I think that plays into so much of our broadly speaking, uh, politic and, and attitude, at least amongst perhaps white Americans. Whereas having an attitude of mercy, boy, it just changes the dynamic, flips the script completely. Uh, yeah, talk more about that different approach. These are such huge questions that, um, you know, you can't even get to the bottom to a, in an episode or even a, even a book. But um, I think you're so right. I think we are marked by sacrifice. I think we have an obsession with it. And it's closely related to fear. Mm, mm-hmm. um, I think driven by our fear to make something of ourselves, we have created this narrative that the only way to get there is if we just you know, beat ourselves up. Mm-hmm. And if we can't beat ourselves up, we'll beat others up. I notice this all the time, like even, like even watching a football game. Um, yeah. If you listen to the commentators and they will talk, they will, which first of all, I don't begrudge anyone the idea that, you know, uh, hard work is important. Right. I mean, right. It is important. I mean, you, you work hard, I work hard. So that's, that's not the deal, but, um, I'm really aware now of how often you'll hear the announcers talk about this guy gets up at six in the morning, you know, or this guy gets up at five in the morning, this guy sleeps at the, you know, at the facility. Mm -hmm. And, um, and then of course, when they win the championship, it's all supposed to be worth it. There's so many thousand sub stories that are going on with all of that um so yeah work hard but um there are there are other things in life things in life can happen really good that you you can't sacrifice for in fact that's what grace is grace is the realization that you can't control anything Hmm. and you can sacrifice the hell out of your life that's an interesting phrase that's maybe that's a Freudian slip. Yeah. Maybe, maybe you really can. You can yes. sacrifice everything and stuff can still go poorly. And then it leaves you at the end of the day with this question of well, what, you know, what does this mean? So I want to jump on that if I can, Jonathan, because the other thought that comes to mind here is again, I imagine you were trained this way in ministry. Like I was of ministry being just about giving to you have nothing left or nearly nothing left. Whereas much of what I was encouraged in my CPE chaplaincy journey was giving out of the overflow. I mean, the concept of being merciful to yourself, I think, is almost antithetical to the way many pastors and church leaders were trained in, to go about ministry, which I think fits into this broader theme, right? Definitely. That's a really good insight. It's so true. I think most pastors intuit it. They most pastors understand that that, that what we're the importance of what we're talking about. But then to be able to rewire themselves, so to speak, and reorient themselves around mm-hmm. a merciful, gracious posture towards themselves, which goes back to the very first question: like most people have never really engaged with love. Yeah. I think you're probably yeah. right. Most spiritual leaders, maybe even most of all which is part and parcel of the problem mm-hmm. We're really into sacrifice. We'll sacrifice ourselves. I, I will say uh, some of the work I did in uh, the book um, that will be out by the time this, uh, 
show comes out too, following the Reconstructionists, was the finishing of my dissertation. I really engaged with sacrifice a little bit hmm. because it's not as if you can get away from it totally. It, it is a biblical word, and we all know that there is um, maybe altruistic, self-donative yeah. kind of sacrifice. So I go in. I had to struggle with that, and I landed on this um, idea of reflexive versus non-reflexive. So in the English language, verb-wise, uh, reflexive verbs are verbs where the subject uh, basically consents. Uh, consensual consent is a really big oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, topic this is for good. me now. Mm -hmm. so, so the, the subject um, willingly steps into it. Non-reflexive is when the subject, it, it's forced upon him. So I say in there, it's oh, the, difference yeah. between, the difference between verbing and being verbed. This is great. I love it. <laughs> no one Grammar wants to here. be no one wants to be verbed, you know. Yeah. And I think all of this is also reflective of the way that um Jesus operates in life. Yeah. You know, once you have the lens to see it, you realize he's not doing this stuff non-reflexively. He is intentionally he says even I I can lay down my life and I have the power to pick it back up. Yeah. He intentionally enters into all this stuff. It's very complex. But I love that because it frees me from the idea that God needs me to sacrifice. I don't think God needs me to do anything. Hmm. I think God is actually pretty happy with me. But, but there is something about the way the universe is threaded together where reflexive sacrifice seems to fuel a lot of stuff. Hmm. It also reminds me of boundaries, which is a, a, a hmm. term that often gets talked about in my context, how that you know, we all need to have boundaries. Uh, we can choose to cross those boundaries, you know, to sacrifice our own boundaries, but it has to be like, it's supposed to be our choice. Like if you have the boundary, Jonathan, I'm like, I'm not going to do podcasts at, you know, before whatever time this is on Thursday mornings, like that can be your boundary. And I can ask you and you can say no, uh, or you can say yes, but that's your choice. Not me saying, Hey, Jonathan, we're going to do this podcast at this time on Thursday morning. Right. Yes. Yes, I think it's so true. And the more we can empower people to think that way, I think the more we're doing the work of love. Okay, I got to ask you one more question here uh, before we take a break. I know we're running a bit long on time here. Um, so the last the last marker along this path, which again I think is kind of kind of like whoa, but uh, I think it is interesting. People over text, and again, my kind of like ingrained. Conservative Baptist in me is like, whoa, people over text, whoa, slow down yeah. there. Uh, talk me through that. Yeah, yeah, heretic. Um, right, and so all three of these things, just as a reminder, are things that I realized as all of my deconstruction, reconstruction journey was being filtered through those three things. Love's mm -hmm. greater than fear. Sacrifice is greater than mercy. And this people are greater than the text. And all of them are reflective of the way Jesus lived, uh, which, which helps me. And when I thought about the way Jesus interacted with folks, uh, of course, I realized there isn't one instance where he, he applies the, you know, the rule of the text um, over against a person in a way that would you know, bind the person up, in a way that would be non-consensual to the person. Uh, that would cross their borders and boundaries. Mm -hmm. um, I do mention, I think I mentioned it in The Reconstructionist, there's one enigmatic story of when he's, uh, is it the Syrophoenician woman that he's interacting with? And it's the whole, even the dog gets the bread of the, mm -hmm. of right, the crumbs. Right. 
like that one's weird because it, it, he starts out a little sarcastic, but even if we admit that by the end, it's clear that he's super impressed with this yeah. lady and, and, and all the rest of the stories, it's just like overwhelming evidence that people to Jesus were really, really important. And that, well, like, yeah, man was made for the Sabbath or no, the Sabbath was made for man, not mm-hmm. man for the Sabbath. Like that, that's kind of it in a nutshell right there. And we really do ourselves a disservice when we worship the words of the Bible so much that we denigrate, disrespect, and exclude people. Well, that's a good way to, let's, let's leave it right there. That's a good uh, ending. So the book is The Reconstructionist's Reconstruction, I can't say it, The Reconstructionist. You got it. People over text, mercy over sacrifice, and love over fear. Uh, share before we take a break uh, how people can. Oh, actually, no, let's do that back in here. Uh, the reconstructionist, okay. let's take a break. We'll come back with some closing questions. All right, we're back with Jonathan Foster. Uh, so some closing questions, you can take those as, these as seriously or not as you'd like to. Uh, but if you're Pope for a day, what does that day look like? What do you want to do? Well, first of all, I've been taking all your questions as serious or not serious as I want to. If I'm Pope for a day, I would literally spend the entire day trying to understand the Catholic theology so that I could figure out what I'm supposed to do, because I don't know it well enough. Fair enough. Fair enough. Um, A theologian or historical Christian figure you'd want to meet or bring back to life? Jeez. There's there's a lot. I mean, it would be weird for me not to say Rene Girard, though he just passed away in 2015. Um, I, I so yeah, I suppose in the spirit of where I'm at in life right now, I'd go Rene Girard and Alfred North Whitehead. Hmm. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Um, what do you think history will remember from our current time and place? Hmm. Good grief! I don't know. No one knows the future. Uh, by the way, I don't even think God knows the exact future. Oh, hot take there. Um, <laughs> I know, hot take, exactly. Um, I, I suppose where my brain goes is that this was a pivotal time hmm. and that uh, we. this was the time. It'll probably be one of two things. Well, I've either learned how to give grace to ourselves and others so that we don't scapegoat and blow up the world, or it'll be the other part. That was another instance mm-hmm. where humans couldn't give grace to themselves and they blew up the world. Well, I hope it's the former, not the latter. Me too. Me too. That's and that is so, why you too probably. So I'm doing my work. Yeah. Something hopeful. Um, what do you hope for the future of Christianity? That we don't scapegoat and blow up the world. <laughs> That's good. <laughs> One in the same. All right, here we are. Uh, where can people connect with you and uh, talk about your book that you have coming out here real soon? Yeah, thank you. So we've been uh, kind of talking around the book, The Reconstructionist. And um, the most recent thing I've done is I just finished up a three-year study where I attempted to bring Rene Girard's mimetic theory in concert with um, open and relational theology, which is kind of process theology-influenced so that's been a super interesting journey, and that book's called Theology of Consent. You can find those books and other things that I've done 
at all fine digital retailers, the Amazons and the Kobos and the Apples, Barnes and Noble, but probably the just the easiest way to connect with me is to go to jonathanfosteronline.com. Great, great. Well, again, for our listeners, I highly recommend the book we talked about today, The Reconstructionist. I really enjoyed it. Um, I encourage folks to check out that and then uh, his forthcoming book here. Um, but Jonathan, thanks so much for your time. Really appreciate the conversation. I always leave folks with a word of peace and may God's peace be with you. Thank you. I accept that. And may you have peace as well. Thank you. Thanks for joining us on the Future Christian Podcast. To learn more about Lauren or the podcast, visit future-christian.com. One more thing before you go, do us a favor and subscribe to the podcast. And if you're feeling especially generous, leave a review. It really helps us get the word out to more people about the podcast. The Future Christian Podcast is a production of Torn Curtain Arts and Resonate Media. Our episodes were mixed by Danny Burton, and the production support is provided by Paul Romaglevitt. Thanks, and go in peace. Peace.